Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column Hear, Hear, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly dive into the murky waters of Brexit. This week marks exactly a year to the date that Britain is due to leave the European Union. And we thought we'd return to a subject that we last visited about a year ago, back in the early days of Brexit means. A subject that brings the reality of Brexit home like no other, really, because it's about individual people and their lives. Citizens' rights. It's also a subject on which, on the face of it, and if you believe the politicians, which is perhaps never an infallibly good idea, a great deal of progress has been made in the Brexit talks so far. The President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, for example, wrote to EU27 leaders ahead of their Brussels summit last week to say that EU citizens would be fully protected from the consequences of Brexit. Theresa May has written personally to EU nationals in the UK to say that Britain is honouring its pledge to preserve their rights, while the Brexit Secretary David Davis has said the draft Article 50 divorce agreement and the deal reached last week on a transition period go a long way to giving the greatest possible legal certainty about their future to EU citizens in Britain and British nationals on the continent. Now, I may be wrong, but I suspect that our two guests this episode, Nicola Hatton of the Three Million, which represents EU citizens in the UK, and Jane Golding, who's chair of the campaign group British in Europe, which pretty much does what it says on the tin, will have something to say about that. Together, they speak for around 4.6 million people in the UK and on the continent, all of whom risk being more or less directly affected by aspects of Brexit. They are both on the line, and here in the studio with me is Lisa O'Carroll, The Guardian's Brexit correspondent who's done such a lot to cover the concerns of EU citizens in Britain and UK nationals abroad. Welcome to all of you. But... 
Before we come to you, let's just hear first from one anxious Briton abroad. Now, Chris Williams is a freelance software engineer. It's a job he's been doing for nearly 20 years, and it takes him all over the EU – Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands – for short and medium-term contracts. Chris, hello. Can, I, can, you, can you tell me first, where are you in Europe at the moment? We're registered as being resident in The Hague. Mm -hmm. And, and have been for the last year. But um, my work for the last two and a half years has been based in numerous locations, but working for the same organization, which was NATO. So uh, started off in Maastricht, uh, then moved to Belgium, and then moved down here to The Hague in the Netherlands again. Freedom of movement, EU freedom of movement is very, very important for your work. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely critical. Because the market I'm looking at for work are all of the, the EU countries, because I'm currently eligible to apply for work and, and to reside in, in any EU country. As a, as a freelancer, you, you tend to follow the money. So you, you look at the, um, the scope and complexity of projects and also the daily rates. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, skill shortages play a big part in this as well. So it could be that in one particular year, Germany has a shortage in, in my skill set, and uh, I, can, I can move into uh, quite a long project and at, at a good daily rate and, and live in Germany for a year and a half, two years, right. and, uh, until the contract completes. We've reached an agreement on the transition deal. We've seen um, you know, the, the draft withdrawal um, agreement. Um, what is there in there, or I suppose I, I, I should say what is there not in there um, that, that concerns you? My understanding is that we would be limited to continue residing in the EU country that we are currently in. Mm -hmm. So in my case, that would be, uh, uh, that would be Holland, mm -hmm. uh, The Hague. The other thing that might complicate it, I suppose, is the idea that after Brexit, British nationals would effectively be sort of third country nationals. But companies in EU member states um, are often obliged to apply a, a kind of EU citizens first policy, which would further reduce your opportunities, wouldn't it? Mm, absolutely. And it's already started, um, mm. even though the negotiations are still pretty fresh. Um, when I when I search for work, um, for example, today I looked at some sites uh, with large providers. I mean, these are all UK-based companies mm -hmm. providing work in in the EU. Mm -hmm. I noticed that there are stronger statements of eligibility against each of the roles now. So it quite clearly states you must be eligible to apply for this role in this country. And after Brexit, I I won't be eligible. So I, I couldn't even put my CV in. That was Chris Williams in The Hague. Thanks. Jane, it's fair to say your organisation, your members still have many concerns, don't you? Is it true that continued freedom of movement, so the, the issue that particularly concerned Chris there, the right to move and live and work freely across the whole of the EU, is the biggest single concern? Because, I mean, I think a lot of people assume, a lot of people in Britain kind of assume that most Brits on the continent are, are, are pensioners, are retired. But that's really not the case, is it? Could you tell us a little bit about the, the profile of British citizens living in the EU first? 
Um, yes, thank you, John. Of course I can. Um, yes, there does seem to be a um, misconception that in the UK that most Brits on the continent are retired. And in actual fact, the figures show that nearly 80% of us are working age or younger, hmm. uh, which, and in fact, around a third are between the ages of 30 and 49. Wow. So that's a, that's a huge proportion of people who are working. And I mean, how important is that, that the, the, the ability uh, to change countries that to be, and, and not to be landlocked? Um, well, I think it's not exactly the question of being landlocked. I mean, what is, will happen under the agreement is it's clear that our rights will only be confirmed in one country. But it's certainly true to say that continuing free movement is absolutely vital to many of our members because many people work cross-border. Mm. And it's also all the linked rights to free movement. So right of establishment, that means the ability to set up a up businesses across the EU, professional qualifications, the right to have your professional qualifications recognised beyond the country we live and work in, mm -hmm. and also um, the issue of providing cross-border services. Right. I mean, could you give us just a, maybe a couple of examples of members who, you know, might be particularly hard hit by what we think at least is going to, uh, is going to transpire? Well, if you take in the example of somebody like Chris, who does a series of short-term and medium-term contracts in different countries, I mean, his livelihood is very dependent on the possibility to move freely across the EU um, and to move where his contracts take him on a regular basis. I mean, that's one example. Mm -hmm. Then we have small caterers who move across the EU to provide catering services in different countries, maybe three or four countries per year. Again, for them, free movement and the ability to move easily across the EU is vital for their livelihood. OK, so Nicola, turning to you, is it possible to pull out one particular concern of your members, of, of EU nationals living in the UK? And we've heard a lot about the new settled status that, that the British government's proposing. It kind of sounds quite straightforward on the face of things. It's supposedly it's going to be quite easy to obtain, at least compared to the incredible performance of getting sort of permanent residency. Does that give EU citizens in the UK broadly what they want? And I suppose equally importantly, can you trust the Home Office to, to administer it? The single issue uh, or the most important issue that really resonates with EU citizens is the application procedure. Because such uh, status is not automatically conferred. Mm -hmm. So all 3.6 million EU citizens will have to apply and uh, and if, if they don't, they won't be documented. Also, they could fail the application procedure. And uh, people are worried that if uh, they don't qualify as a lawful resident, which is uh, defined by European legislation, they might not be getting their status, even if they reside here for a long time. So th there's a real worry that uh, the Home Office might select, whether it's because of uh, errors, mm -hmm. uh, and we know that the current error rate is about 10% on the permanent residence applications, mm. or, uh, or they might want to select uh, 
because uh, some citizens are not contributing as much as others. Hmm. So um, there's a real worry that uh, uh, not everyone will go, uh, will get documented through the process. Okay, and is there any kind of transparency about what those criteria will be, do you think? We are preparing a series of questions to the Home Office ahead of a meeting with the Immigration Minister, Caroline Oaks. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, we've got 129 questions. Wow. And uh, that, that's the problem, is that <laughs> on one hand, uh, we see EU leaders and the Prime Minister congratulating themselves on the securing a deal on citizens' rights. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, we're not getting answers from the Home Office. And uh, it's a difficult place to be because we want certainty. We've been asking for certainty for 640 days as of today. Hmm. And uh, we can't get certainty if we don't get answers to our questions. Absolutely. Lisa, that's uh, 120-odd questions. That's an awful lot, isn't it? I mean, you've been covering this area for over a year now. Uh, I mean, would you say, as the politicians appear to be saying, and as Nicola just mentioned there, that citizens' rights have been protected and and preserved and and won't be affected by Brexit? Is that the impression that, that you have? Uh, no, I think uh, talking, you know, over the past year, 18 months, both to Jane and Nicola and other others involved in this campaign and just individuals, um, if you took a graph uh, and you drew something like, a, you know, a cloche, you would um, uh, be able to chart the impact that people like Nicola and Jane have had on politics. So very early on, uh, December 2016, we had that case of Monique Hawkins, the Dutch yes. woman who was threatened with um, uh, you know, a, a prepared to leave letter, even though she was perfectly entitled to be here. Mm. And that um, shot the uh, issue of EU citizens right up uh, to the top of the agenda. The Europe, European Parliament stood up, stood up straight, launched an investigation, the Commission, Barnier got involved. And so it went. And now I think that the that 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 curve is is on the way down. And I think that is the real fear that the issue that the politicians like Barnier Tusk, as we know, told European leaders last week, much to the annoyance of uh, the three men in the British in Europe, that a deal was done to guarantee um, the continuation mm. of the rights. And that was not the case. Um, and that would be my fear is that EU citizens, you know, neither groups, they, they have done fantastically well, punched way above their weight. But they don't have political clout in a way that a political party has. They don't have a direct seat um, at negotiations. Um, and as we know, you know, the, the more powerful the lobby is, mm. the greater the voice. So money talks. So mm. the banks um, have a voice. I think I think EU citizens are in danger of being let down and particularly Brits in Europe. Um, uh, I think, you know, you touched on the freedom of movement there. EU citizens in the UK, although some... Uh, rights do float from residency as opposed to their passport but you still Nicolai you will still have the right to go back to France at any point um, and to go to any Europe and your children if they've got passports of your nationality will also have that mm. right like I will retain a right as an Irish citizen in the mm-hmm. UK but British citizens won't have that and that mm. is a, that, that, that is a, a, a really serious diminution of rights yeah. um, and I think when it comes to employment you've touched on uh, an issue um, in relation to freedom of movement again through the Chris Williams story um, and you know people in Chris's position will point you to recruitment um, agencies who deal with the IT profession and they require 
that third country nationals have access to the Schengen area. Mm. So a Britain in Europe won't, you know, it, it will have less rights, as I understand it, no. than a third country national yeah. who, say, yeah. comes in from Australia or India yeah. or Japan and gets 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 okay. permission to work in, in say, Germany. I, I mean, this is clearly the big issue. I mean, this clearly sounds like a really significant diminution of rights, Jane. Where has that come from? Why has this what appears to be really critical aspect of you know of, of of British citizens' rights on the continent of Europe in in the EU. Why is it has it not been included uh, in the the withdrawal agreement and the and the transition deal? What what's gone wrong there? Um, I think what's gone wrong or why it's not been included is because those rights are seen as particularly attaching to the fundamental status of EU citizenship. Um, and uh, the view of the EU has been they can only confirm the rights that we're actually using our existing rights. I mean, they've talked about existing life choices, but not able to confirm or safeguard future life choices. But when we started in this, Jane, I can remember down at the House of Lords in the summer, straight after the referendum and the House of Lords EU committee had got straight, got stuck into this straight away. And there was a, a professor there from a university here in London and she was talking about acquired rights and how international law did not protect um, EU citizens. Mm. But nobody knew what acquired rights meant. You know, even she found it very difficult to define that. So we've gone through all that process. And one of the defined rights was surely your freedom to move around. That That is a legacy yeah. of you yeah. exercising your freedom of movement rights. So that by right, you should be able to have that post-Brexit. You should have special status to differentiate yeah. you from that Australian, that Indian or American who comes into Germany to work as an IT director or whatever. And, and, and that, that's, that's the void. That, I mean, that's the question I'm trying to get at, Jane. Is it, I mean, has there somewhere been a, a political decision here? We know very clearly that um, one of the main drivers of, uh, uh, of the Brexit vote and of the whole Brexit, sort of, of, of the push for Brexit here in the UK was you know, the desire of the, of the British government to restrict the rights of, uh, of EU citizens in the UK. Are, I mean, somewhere along the line, are you feeling the backlash from that? Is that what's actually been happening here? Well, I think it is partly that, because I think that obviously at the beginning, um, back in May last year, the um, EU made a proposal, and the proposal looked as if it was going to safeguard all of our existing rights. Then, of course, the UK came back with a counter-proposal, which effectively was all about um, uh, was all about a, a new lesser status for EU citizens in the UK. And then we got the negotiations, and inevitably, once negotiations start, uh, there are compromises. Hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with this. I think it's also um, a particularly legalistic approach to defining what um, our required rights are, or if we have any as EU citizens, that they can only be confirmed in the country where we're actually exercising them. Mm. Whereas, of course, our argument from the beginning was we have a primary right under the treaty. It's a right of free movement, and that extends across the whole territory mm. of the EU member states. So that's been our argument from the beginning, and we're still pushing that argument. Um, so I think that has been where um, the problem has come. 
instead of having our rights confirmed, it's, it's life choices that have been confirmed here. Yeah. And as we've said from the beginning, life choices are based on rights and not vice versa. We have rights mm. and we've, we've exercised those rights and based on those rights, we've made life choices. It's not our life choices that are to be protected, it's our rights. Exactly. Um, Nicola, there's an issue as well for you and your members, uh, EU nationals in, in the UK, also with several rights that you're concerned about. One, for example, the right to continued access to the sort of the European Court of Justice, should there be any dispute about what your rights are in the UK? Where, I mean, where are we on that? That has, has been obviously one of, the, one of Theresa May's most strident red lines, that there should be no involvement at all of the European Court of Justice. She said, that you know the relevant parts of the withdrawal agreement affecting citizens will be written into into UK law. Is that enough for you? Where and where does that whole process stand? It's still not quite clear. So we know that the ECJ will still be valid for for eight years after the transition period, uh, but it won't be for the rest of my own life or the life of uh, the majority of EU citizens here. But uh, the ECJ is not necessarily uh, the, the complete solution. So if I apply for their status and an error is made, uh, I want to be able to appeal and uh, make the appeal in the country mm-hmm. and possibly uh, to uh, an administrative body that would be above the Home Office. Mm. And at the moment, there's a lot of uncertainty about this. Uh, firstly, the government is pushing for an exemption on the immigration data through the data protection bill. Mm-hmm. So if that goes through and we're complaining against that, it means that I will not have access to my data or my solicitor will not have access to my data. Mm-hmm. So how can I form an appeal if I don't know what the whole has got on the record? Uh, the second thing is that the appeal right I will get is not necessarily in-country. So I, I could make an appeal, but I could be deported first because the lack of the status makes me deportable straight away. And uh, what, what, what we're starting to do now is say to people, make sure you keep record of all the documents that could be useful in mm. case this application process is not as straightforward as promised. Yeah. We've been told that it will be an app, that they will check uh, the data with government governmental database, but if they can't find you, you will need to provide evidence. Mm. And uh, it, it, it is a real worry. Lisa, I mean, that's certainly true, isn't it? And there, there are a, a, an awful lot of holes in these agreements as they stand, aren't there? How much scope, realistically, do you think is there for those holes to be filled in? I mean, how much is citizens' rights... Uh, uh, any kind of priority. The, the the issue now is that it's wrapped up in the um, a wider negotiation about the future relationship between the um, EU and the UK because the withdrawal agreement has been agreed and as Jane and Nicola know that Ar- Article 32 relating to freedom of movement was taken out mm. completely um, uh, from the uh, withdrawal agreement and you've got to question how, what is the political channel that needs to be... Um, needs to be used to to crowbar um, these issues back onto the agenda. And you could you can see how freedom of movement is part of, and indeed the ECJ and, arbit- and mm. future arbitration is part of the wider um, uh, conversation. But what you would fear is that um, the, the real-life implications and consequences for EU citizens mm. won't be what will be asked, won't be 
at issue it will be the wider political yes, top line yes, stuff yeah. and, the, and do, the citizens rights will just become a pawn in the or a number yeah. of pawns in the overall process in the yeah overall and game, i do yeah. i do think that it just wanted to come back to what nicola mentioned mm. about the commonwealth citizens he was referring to mm. a 55 54 55 year old man who'd been a, a jamaican chap i believe who'd been here for decades mm. um came here as a teenager i think has, has uh, children and grandchildren has prostate cancer but because he hasn't got paperwork mm. The um, cancer hospital uh, produced a bill of 54,000 and refused to mm. um, treat him. And Theresa May has refused to, to, to back intervene. his cause. Mm. And I think that is really, really scary for EU citizens because uh, Steve Pearce, a professor of um, EU law in Essex University, said to me this week, the whole CSI issue is still there and not resolved while the UK government has promised the comprehensive, CSI, comprehensive yeah. sickness insurance, mm. which slash private insurance mm. for those people so it was a requirement for people who are self-sufficient so that would be students uh, and self-sufficient people largely you uh, might be stay-at-home mothers mm. or, or um, spouses who are being um, supported by uh, their, 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 their partners and the government promised it, it never implemented implemented the mm-hmm. requirement which is Europe Europe wide requirement and the feeling here was that because NHS was universally socially mm. socially universally available um, health service that that wasn't actually CSI so the government after a few run-ins on EU citizens applications for permanent residence agreed to drop that but it isn't le- it's not legally binding. Mm. And it's not written into the withdrawal agreement. Mm. And as Steve Pearce points out, is that there is a risk that that could be litigated. Mm. And you, you, could, you cannot rely on a government promise. Exactly. I just want to touch briefly on a, on a couple of the other very specific rights that people are concerned about. Jane, you mentioned them briefly, but um, recognition of professional qualifications and and how uh, concerns about how individual EU member states might treat third country citizens, because which is of course is what British nationals will be, because you know in individual member states can there's quite a lot of leeway in in how they can uh, you know uh, deal with and, and register or otherwise uh, uh, third-party nationals. Uh, could you just say a, a word or two about those? Yeah, um, I'll perhaps talk about um, the second question, first of all, mm. third, how EU member states will treat third-country citizens and go back to what Lisa was saying and we were discussing before about all the gaps in the agreement. Mm. And at the moment, you know, the, the question is exactly how those gaps might be filled first of all, by EU rules on third country nationals, then there's the national rules, and then uh, in, in each member state, and then there are the provisions of any future um, EU-UK relationship. So basically, there's going to be three layers for the people who are covered by the withdrawal agreement. The withdrawal agreement, um, any legislation at EU level, because there is some mm-hmm. common immigration policy for third country nationals at EU level, Mm-hmm. Um, how that will apply to us and um, how the future relationship will apply to us. And of course, we know the future relationship will depend very much on the UK negotiating position. It could take years. And as far as um, the third country national legislation is concerned at EU level, at the moment, there's no clarity about if and how it would apply to people who are covered by the withdrawal agreement. So it's all very uncertain. Mm. And then you add on the layer of um, uh, national, how national legislation applies in each EU 27 um, country. Mm-hmm. So it is very complex and very uncertain at the moment. 
Right. So that's one side, on uh, one point. On the professional qualifications, I'll just say very quickly, um, during transition, I think things will remain as they are now because all single market legislation, if there is a transition period, will continue to apply. But after transition, a lot of qualifications will be covered by the withdrawal agreement. So for those people who fall within the scope of it. um, But the qualifications will only continue to be recognized in the country where you live, in the country of residence. Okay, so that's back to this whole question of uh, of effectively being locked into, or at least find it, it'll be much, much harder for people to move afterwards. Much harder. And then there are, in fact, also some qualifications that simply won't be covered. Hmm. Okay, Nicola, um, one of the EU citizens in the, in the UK's concerns as well, I, I, as I understand it, is, is this whole issue of family rights. Uh, is, that a, is that an important thing for, for you? What can you say about that? The, the deal basically restricts uh, the family reunification rights that we currently have by preventing EU citizens to bring future partners. So uh, on paper, some people say, well, we're getting more than what we thought we would get because actually more than what the British citizens can do right now, because their rights were downgraded right. in 2015, I think. Mm-hmm. And ours were not because we were protected by the EU. Mm. Uh, another benefit. But, so my daughter, for example, she's uh, 13. Mm-hmm. As a French citizen in Britain, uh, you know, she obviously doesn't know what her future partner will be. So she will remain... European, she will travel uh, in Europe, she might even study in Europe, mm-hmm. but if she finds love over, over the tunnel, mm. that person she will want to bring back will basically, we have to go through the hoops of the home office like any such multinational. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this like, age uh, issue here, there's a discrimination against the young in that agreement. Mm. because it doesn't protect them in terms of their rights. Mm-hmm. And then they won't be able to have the life that we've had because of the limit on family yeah. reunification. Yeah. Uh, there's also a limit of the number of years you can be abroad. So uh, if you're a young European, young EU citizen living in the UK, you'll be able to uh, go and travel in Europe with your services and come back. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't do that for more than five years, it's it's a it's a kind of a diminution of rights all round. Yes, um, Jane, just very briefly, is that an issue for British citizens on the continent if they wanted to? I mean, for example, uh, you know, if, if someone wanted to retire back to the uh, the UK eventually with a with an EU spouse, is that something that might cause problems? Yes, absolutely, because we would be um, in the same situation. In fact, in some ways worse, because this would even uh, apply to existing family members. So if I wanted to move back to the UK Mm. with my German husband in future, uh, if he is viewed as a third country national in the UK, then I will only be able to return to the UK with him if I can fulfil the conditions under Mm. the quite stringent UK immigration rules on income um, or assets. Mm. So, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, this will be a barrier to British citizens who live outside the UK at the moment returning mm-hmm. to the UK. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Lisa, what, one thing we haven't mentioned here, or you mentioned it right at the very beginning, is um, the role of the European Parliament in the overall package. Is it, I mean, is it fair to say that they've got 
European citizens' backs um, a, a little bit more than the other institutions? I, I think it is, and I, I think that's, that, that is the main worry when your leading politicians in the European Commission and in Europe, in, in Britain are saying the deal is done and everybody mm. knows the deal isn't done. Mm. How do you bridge that gap in terms of um, uh, a public perception? And Guy Verhofstadt has been very vocal and tweeted last week after the uh, um, withdrawal agreement was signed that um, he would block um, the deal if it didn't um, uh, include all the rights that mm. EU citizens deserve. However, I think, speaking to one of the MEPs this week who said it's unlikely that the, that, that the European Parliament, when it comes to it, when push will, comes actually, to shelf, will, really. will, actually, yeah. will actually block it at mm. all. Mm. Um, but that's the European Parliament seems mm. to be where... where a voice can be heard. Yes, where the, where the fight back at least might, yes. Kind of wrapping up now, Nicola and Jane, just briefly, you're going to carry on presumably making yourselves heard. Are you optimistic that you will be? I mean, is there scope for uh, uh, the holes in in these agreements that we've been talking about to be to be filled in in a, in a way that's sort of satisfactory to you? Jane, start with you. What I would say is we will keep fighting and we will keep pushing through the political routes. And obviously we have got strong support in the European Parliament mm. and pressure, they can continue to put pressure over the next months. Uh, they put out a very strong resolution on the 14th of March and one of the red lines was free movement for UK citizens in the EU as well as lifelong right of return for EU citizens in the UK. Mm. So we will continue to push through those political routes and then also think of uh, other ways of getting our voices heard, even though most of us don't have a vote in the UK. Yes. Yeah. And Nicola? Well, Lisa talked about counterpower earlier at the beginning, Mm. and she's right that we haven't got the strength of political parties, but uh, we have a voice. And I think The Guardian is actually one of, uh, of, the, of the best uh, newspaper to relay that voice when there's something that's obviously not quite right. We, we're turning our organization into a membership organization really to increase that voice and make sure that we actually really represent people. So I would really encourage people to, uh, to join and, uh, and add their voice to the campaign because there's a lot to play for. Uh, the agreement uh, that was agreed is a framework agreement. And actually, there's a lot of room for maneuver for the British government. So we're not going to stop. We're going to actually intensify the campaign mm. because we want the Home Office to do the right thing. And I believe there's a lot of uh, good people in the Home Office that I've met that they really want to document to you citizens. And uh, if we manage to convince them that you know, what they're planning to do might not have the effect they intend, mm. but we can really help them doing that. Right. Okay. Well, listen, good luck is all I can say. And and keep up the good fight. Thank you very much indeed. That's it for this week. Uh, My thanks to Lisa, to Jane and to Nicola for joining me once more. Uh, If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, do please email us at brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. Please subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Memes, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.